Amen. Amen. Welcome once again to Emmanuel Covenant Church. We could just close in prayer because that, that just was awesome. That, that just was so great. Thanks so much for being here. We're continuing today in our de-grinching Christmas series. And we've been, as we've been going through this series, preparing for Christmas, for the coming of Christ into our world, we've been working on de-grinching Christmas, and we've been looking into this reality that we all experience this time of year. There's something that we all experience. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from or, or really even what you believe. The truth is that most people are maxed out this time of year. Most people are, are just maxed out. Maybe you came in today and you feel like you're, you look at your calendar and, and things just are maxed out. You look at your budget and things are just maxed out. Maybe you're just like emotionally maxed out. And, and this time of year, can, it can get that way. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how when we live life maxed out, that can do something to our heart. Just like the Grinch, it can make our heart three sizes too small. And so we need to work on guarding our hearts. We need, we need to, no one's doing that for, for us but us. And so we need to guard our hearts. And last week, Pastor Chris, he talked about the yokes that we take on. And I'm not talking about eggs. I'm talking about the yokes from the Bible, which are like the burdens that, that we take on. And we found out that Jesus' burden is easy and his yoke is light. And that's good news. And this week, we're going to talk about what I think can be one of the most frustrating parts of Christmas, what can be one of the most stressful parts of Christmas, and yet it is probably, I mean, it's cornerstone. It's essential when it comes to Christmas, and that's generosity. Generosity. And now I just want to clear the air. Um, we're not talking about generosity today because we're going to have a second offering basket passed, okay? We're not, all right? And we're not talking about generosity today um, because the church is in some sort of financial trouble or something like that. that. That's just not the case. That's not why we're doing that. Today, we want something for you and not something from you, okay? We want something for you and not something from you. In fact, when we look at this community... I mean, it's so cool to see how much generosity exists in this, in this community. We literally ran out of kids to get Christmas presents for, for our ministry partner race in the city. We ran out. Isn't that so cool? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That's a cool thing. And it's great to be a part of a community like that. Look at what, uh, what the Apostle Paul says about generosity in 2 Corinthians. He says, Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, how many times do you hear that in church, right? That's, uh, that's in the Bible, and that's how we do giving. And, but look at this. For God loves what? A cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. And that's why we have to talk about generosity. Because it's supposed to be cheerful. It's supposed to be joyful. Especially at Christmas. Generosity. It's supposed to be joyful. But the reality is that for many of us, we live lives that are just maxed out. Maybe our lives financially just are, are maxed out. And financial, the financial aspect of Christmas, the generosity portion of Christmas, for some of us is not that joyful. In fact, it's pretty stressful. Because the, the reality is that being maxed out financially, it leaves crumbs for joyful generosity. Being maxed out, living on, on the edge financially, it leaves crumbs. There's really not a whole lot of resources for generosity that's joyful. Now, we're all going to do generosity. Like, I, no one here needs a lecture on, hey, you should be generous because the Bible says so, okay? No, no one needs that. But the reality is that we get to a time like Christmas, and the way that, that I mean, we're living maxed out, and all that's left 
is crumbs for joyful generosity. Now, there's a, there's a reason why our generosity sometimes isn't joyful. Um, there's actually two emotions that will get wrapped up into our generosity from time to time. And these emotions are super powerful. They, they can cause us to leave crumbs. In fact, they can turn us into somewhat of a Grinch when it comes to generosity. And those emotions are fear and shame. And the truth is that fear and shame taint the joy of giving. Fear and, and shame taint the joy of giving. And we all know what this, what this is like. We've all experienced this at, at some point along the way. I mean, you've, you've, been, um, you've been walking down the street at some point in time, and it's like negative 10-degree wind chill, and you're just freezing, and you're trying to get into your building that's warm. And then you see the Salvation Army guy. He's ringing his bell. And he's just smiling, you know. He's like the happiest guy for negative 10 degree windshield that you could ever meet. And you're like, come on, man. No one's that happy when it's this cold. And so you're just trying to avoid eye contact, you know what I mean? You, you, you're, and, and then, but he sees you. <laughs> he sees you. You're like, okay, don't be a Grinch, Nick. All right, I'm, so I'll give him some change. And so you walk over. And then you're kind of within, like, the radius of I'm going to give something by the bucket. You know what I'm talking about? So you reach into your pocket, and then uh, you're looking for some change, but you realize that you used your change to park with. So you're like, okay, all right. So you pull your wallet out, and you thumb through, and you're thinking, okay, I'll give them a couple bucks. But all you have is a 20. And you're like, I was thinking like a buck 50. <laughs> and you're wondering if the Salvation Army guy makes change. <laughs> you know? I don't think they do that. I, I just don't think they... And, and, and you're, you're afraid to, to give 20 bucks, because that wasn't what you were anticipating. But then you're, you're kind of, you're in the circle. So you're kind of ashamed to, to not give that. And then all of a sudden, the joy of giving is gone, isn't it? It's gone. Or we've all been, um, we've all been to that, you know, that family gift exchange. You know, the one where you drive seven hours through a blizzard to eat ham and open presents for about four hours with people that you'd rather spend less than two hours with. You know what I'm talking about? And we've all been to that family gift exchange. And, and you know, you know that you're never going to make as much money as your brother-in-law. You'll never do that. But he buys those gifts, right? He buys those things. And, well, you better, too, because, I mean, you don't want to be unfair to the kids, right? You don't want to be unfair. You've got to keep everything even keel. But then, again, you might have to face the fact that he's done better than you financially. Merry Christmas, right? And all of a sudden, the fear and, and the shame... It creeps in and it steals the joy from our generosity. Uh, we've all passed the homeless person on the street and we're afraid if we gave something to them or helped them out in some way, then they might abuse our generosity. And then we walked away and we didn't do anything. And we felt bad about that. And the joy of giving is robbed by fear. It's robbed by shame. And this happens in all arenas of life. It's not just like when you're doing philanthropic type things, you know. It's not just when, when you're helping the poor or something. It happens in all areas of life. The other day, I was, um, I was eating dinner with Michelle. And we split, my wife Michelle, we split a pizza. And um, there was a little bit of pizza left over. And there was enough left over for her to take for lunch the next day to work, which is like, great, we don't buy lunch. Um, so I had, a, I had a little bit of a dilemma. Because I was still kind of hungry. <laughs> so, so I had a decision to make. Um, I could be a good husband, and I could pack up her pizza in, in a nice little Tupperware thing and, and put it in the fridge for her to take to lunch the next day. Or I could make sure that I wasn't hungry later. 
what do you think I did? I did not pack it up. I I left crumbs for my wife, okay? What kind of husband does that? And and it's embarrassing to tell you now. In fact, I don't even know why I'm telling you right now. But it's embarrassing. And at the time, I was afraid, you know, I'll be hungry later. But now it's embarrassing. And fear and shame, it gets wrapped up into all sorts of arenas of life. And it steals the joy from our generosity. And Christmas is supposed to be a generous time of year. And it's supposed to be a joyful time of year. How, How do we do that? Because when fear and shame get wrapped up in our generosity, it can cause us to leave crumbs. Take a look at at what I'm talking about. And when Cindy Lou Who was in bed with her cup, he crept to the chimney and stuffed the tree up. Then he went up the chimney himself, the old liar, and the last thing he took was a log for their fire. On their walls, he left nothing but and some wire. And the one speck of food that he left in the house was a crumb that was even too small for a mouse. Jerk. (laughs) Poor mouse, you know. But isn't it true that that we live in a crumb-leaving culture? We live in a a crumb-leaving culture. And granted, I'm sure that none of us... (laughs) We're not going into people's houses and stealing their Christmas presents and leaving nothing but, but tin and wire or whatever the Grinch left and stealing the log from the fire and, and however many other things I can make rhyme in that sentence. But, um, none of us are doing that. But don't we, don't we just kind of have this assumption as a culture that anything that God puts in front of us is for us? Don't we just have this assumption that anything that God puts in front of us is actually for us to consume? And so we live life maxed out. We, we take and we take and we take and we're just living life. And then all of a sudden we get to a time like Christmas where it's a time to be generous and it's a time to be joyful. And we turn to our resources and we're like, hey, time to be joyful. What is there to be joyful with and to be generous with? And there's crumbs. See, for, for some of us, if we were to put our financials up on the screen for everyone to see, we'd, we'd be embarrassed. We'd be afraid of that and we'd be ashamed of that. Because when we think about how much we, we spend on ourselves, I mean, that, that, can, that can be something that we don't really want to make public information. And that can cause fear and shame to creep into our generosity. And where's the joy go then? For some of you, life just happened to you this year. And you got medical bills. Or you've been out of work for a while. And you're afraid that you're not going to be able to be generous in the way that you should, quote-unquote, whatever that means. Where does the joy of giving go then? And we live in, in a crumb-leaving culture. And, and we all know that this is a problem. We all, we all know that this is an issue because not only do we know that Christmas should be joyful, not only do we know that and, and want to be, we want to be generous. And, but fear and shame, they steal the joy from our generosity, don't they? And it kind of wrecks Christmas. It kind of turns us into a Grinch. And it puts us in financial strife. It puts us in strife in our relationship with others. It puts us in strife in our relationship with God. And, and fear and shame, man, it, it can really turn us into a Grinch. So how do we do this generosity thing, this thing that we all want to do? How do we do it with joy rather than ought or should? 
shame or fear? How do we do true generosity? And how do we do that with joy? So that's what we're going to wrestle to the ground today. Um, and we're going to do two things to, to try and answer that question. Um, first, we're going to go through a, a couple things in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote about being a cheerful giver. Um, and I'm going to do something that I normally don't do. Normally, I like to tell the story. Like, if we're going to read through Paul's letter, I'll tell you the story of the letter. Well, the letter's, the letter's a whole book of the Bible. And this section of the letter is two whole chapters. That would take us way beyond our time today. So I'm going to give you the cliff notes, okay? Uh, but I'm only doing that trusting that you are going to go home and read it. Because this book, it will change your life. It will change your life. And if you don't read it, man, I encourage you to read it. We actually have free Bibles. If you, if you want a Bible, uh, it's yours. Uh, no strings attached. Um, or there's apps and stuff that I encourage you to download. Uh, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes for this section of the letter that's going to give us some practical help to do Christmas and generosity, not just Christmas, all of generosity with cheer and joy. And then after that, I want to talk about a story that's really going to get to the heart of the issue. Okay, can we do that? Does that sound good? All right, so let's get started with this letter that, that Paul wrote. Paul was writing to this wealthy group of, uh, of Christians that lived in Corinth, which was a city in Greece, okay? And uh, he was writing to them, and as he was writing, this was a, a time in his ministry where the Christians that lived in Jerusalem, they were deeply, deeply impoverished. They were struggling big time. And so Paul is trying to get these wealthy Christians to give, but he wants them to give joyfully. He wants them to give cheerfully, the way that generosity is supposed to be. And so he gives them some advice. So here's the cliff, the cliff notes. Here's the first piece of advice that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthians about cheerful giving. Make a plan to put your money where your heart is. Make a plan to put your money where your heart is. The Apostle Paul knew that the Corinthians did not need a lecture on you should give. They didn't need that. But they needed to make a plan so that when the time for generosity came, the giving wasn't frustrating. The giving wasn't unforeseen. The giving wasn't, wasn't a burden, but giving was a joy. And so he, he encouraged them to make a plan to put your money where your heart is. And this is what he says. Look in verse, or chapter 9, verse 3 and 5, 3 to 5. But I am sending these brothers to be sure that you are really ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in boasting about you. He was boasting about how generous the Corinthians were. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came and found that you weren't ready after all that I told them. It'd be embarrassing, right, to show up to a season of generosity where you want to contribute, where people are expecting you to contribute, and all there is is crumbs. It'd be embarrassing. Paul also says, uh, let your eagerness... Let the, the things that you're excited about in your heart, let your eagerness that you showed at the beginning be matched now by your giving. Put your money where your heart is. The things that you're eager about, the thing that God has called you to, let your eagerness, as you showed in the beginning, be matched by your giving. And he also says, man, this is a good thing to hear in church, you must each, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly, or in response to pressure. Paul's saying, make a plan to put your money where your heart is. And so when we, when we make this plan, we can actually engage in the passions of our heart with our generosity. So that's, that's the first principle that we see from the Apostle Paul in this letter. The second one is determine how you've been, or how you'll be, 
sorry, determine how you'll bless others in proportion to how you've been blessed. Determine how you'll bless others in proportion to how you've been blessed. Paul says, whatever you give is acceptable. It's not about the amount. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. See, it's about the heart again, isn't it? Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. A lot of us will base our giving on like a certain amount. Well, um, if, I, if I give this much, then I won't be able to do this or I'm afraid that this is going to happen. And, and, and that's giving based out of fear. Paul's saying, give out of what you have, not what you don't have. Why? Look at what he says in in 9-11. He says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. Now, um, let's just be really clear. That does not mean, um, oh, great, God's going to enrich me in every way so I can always be generous. So I'll take out thousands of dollars in credit card debt. He'll pay it all off, and then I can give like 100 bucks to somebody to be generous or something. That's not what the Bible is saying here. What it's saying is that God builds within your provision the generosity that he expects of you. God wants to be generous to people through you. And so through through the provision that he's given you, that he's provided for you, your generosity is built into that. So if your provision goes up, your generosity should go up. If your provision goes down, same thing. Paul says, determine how you'll bless others in proportion to how you've been blessed. And and that requires a plan, doesn't it? So we make a plan. We make a plan to to, um, put your money where your heart is, and then we determine how you'll bless others in proportion to how you've been blessed. And the last one is is this. If you want to do cheerful generosity, give to causes that are effective. Give to causes that are actually trustworthy. Paul knew this was important, okay? He said, uh, we're traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way that we're handling this generous gift. And we're careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone else to see that we are honorable. Paul knew. Paul knew that if you want to do cheerful generosity, you've got to be able to trust where you're giving. And and how are you doing on these three? How are these these three working for you? I mean, we, we make a plan to put our money where our heart is. You determine how to bless others in proportion to how you've been blessed. And, and then we give to causes that are effective and trustworthy. I mean, maybe, maybe you have some of these. Maybe you have number one, but you're still working on number two. Maybe you have number three, but you're still working on one and two. And, and uh, just do a little self-evaluation here, just a quick self-check. Because these things are really helpful for doing generosity the way that it's meant to be, joyfully cheerfully. But there's a problem. And the Apostle Paul knew this problem. Uh, if you read the, the full two chapters, uh, like I, I strongly encourage you to do that. Um, if you read the full two chapters, you'll see it. There, there's, there's something that's missing. You know, some of us have great budgets. Some of us, we give in, in a proportion. It's not an amount. We choose to give in proportion because it's a value. Some of us, we give to causes that are effective and trustworthy. But the, the problem is that Sometimes there's still not joy. Sometimes there's still a little bit of shame, a little bit of fear that's wrapped up in that. What do you do with that? Because we all know, Paul knew, you know, I know, we all know that leaving crumbs, it's not just a budget problem. 
but it's a spiritual heart problem. I mean, the, the first principle is make a plan to put your money where your heart is. Well, if your heart's in the wrong place, you're going to have trouble being joy, truly generous and truly joyful. And the reality is that leaving crumbs isn't just a budget problem, but it's a spiritual heart problem. And Jesus, he was, he was known for dealing with spiritual heart problems. You see, there was a time in Jesus' ministry where he entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. And the thing that you need to know about Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus, he was kind of the Grinch of the Bible, okay? Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. And I, I don't know if, if any of you work for the IRS or anyone knows anyone that works for the IRS, but when someone says, hey, what do you do? And they're like, I work for the IRS. And you're like, oh, um, this was way worse. Way worse. Because in, in this time and in this culture, the Roman Empire had taken over all of the known world, basically, and, and especially in this region in, in uh, Jericho. And what, what the Romans would do is uh, they were very oppressive. They, they were socially oppressive. They were economically oppressive because they needed to make sure that their conquered countries would stand or control. And so they, what they do is they would collect taxes, and they would appoint a local official, someone that's from the region, to be the tax collector. And Rome would require a certain amount, but the only way that tax collectors could make money is if they collected just a smidge more. And of course, that left a lot of room for abuse. And tax collectors, they would line their own pockets with the poverty of their own people, and that's what Zacchaeus was doing. Zacchaeus was a Jew, and he was stealing from his own family from his own nation. He was collecting taxes. He was considered to be gross and filthy. He was a Grinch. He was the Grinch of the Bible. They didn't have Christmas at that point in time. But he was stealing Christmas. He was making grandma pinch pennies. You know what I mean? And so it was only natural that the Jewish population, his own family, would ostracize him. Because they thought that he was a traitor and a thug. But he heard that Jesus was coming. This Zacchaeus did. And he heard that not only was Jesus a miracle worker, he heard that maybe he was the long-awaited Messiah and that he might be a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And so Zacchaeus, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. And now, uh, this means that, of course, like, he's, he's literally, he's too short, and everyone else is taller. And so he's kind of, like, there's this crowd surrounding Jesus, and he's trying to, trying to get around and to, to see him, and he can't because he's physically short in stature, but he was also sh- socially short in stature. And so the crowd, they see Zacchaeus. They know who he is. He's, he's not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. Everybody knows his name. He doesn't deserve to see Jesus. And so they're kind of doing this making sure that he can't, he can't really see Jesus. They, don't want to make sure, they want to make sure that he can't get his way, that he can't see God. He doesn't deserve that. He's the Grinch of the Bible. So Zacchaeus, he, he does something that's kind of outrageous. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. 
for Jesus was going to pass that way. And the thing you need to understand is that in this culture and in this time, for a wealthy grown man to run, that was shameful. That was like they were afraid of something. For a wealthy grown man to do that, and the crowd sees him run, and they're probably snickering like, ha-ha, what comes around goes around. And then, not only that, he climbs a tree. That's not for rich, wealthy, grown men. That's for poor, undignified people. And he climbs a tree, and that would have been so shameful. And there was something in Zacchaeus, though. There was something going on in his heart, something in his soul that was so afraid that it was worth it to run. There's something in Zacchaeus that was so ashamed that it was worth it to climb that tree. And so this wealthy tax collector runs and climbs this tree and the crowd's snickering at him and, and saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Zacchaeus. And then later it says, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus. And called him by name. And the crowd's thinking at this point, yeah, he's going to tell Zacchaeus all the things that he's done wrong. How he's been a Grinch. How selfish he's been. How he's been all about take, take, take. He's unclean. He's worthless in the sight of God. He doesn't deserve to be around here. He should just get out. Zacchaeus, he said. Quick. Come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And as these words left Jesus' mouth, I imagine the crowd simultaneously sucked air. (gasps) Because to, to be a guest in his house? I mean, this was the equivalent of Jesus saying, I accept you the way you are. But he was a sinner and a tax collector. Look at, look at his life. Everybody knows Zacchaeus. We know Zacchaeus. Jesus, you know Zacchaeus. And we know that, that he's a traitor and a thug. He's a Grinch. He's selfish and he's greedy. And you're going to his house, Jesus? And look at how, Jesus, or how Zacchaeus reacts. Zacchaeus climbs down And took Jesus, he quickly climbed down, and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Not just a regular sinner, he's a notorious sinner. They grumbled. And during this interaction, we don't don't get, like, the conversation that Jesus and Zacchaeus had, like, we don't know if, um, if Jesus was like, hey, Zach, look, man, you got some stuff in your life, but I'm the savior of the world, so let's, uh, let's change that. You know, we don't know if that was the conversation. We have no idea because we don't need to know. What we needed to know is that something happened to Zacchaeus. Something happened to him. Something, something began to touch him in that place of fear. Just from that interaction with Jesus, something began to touch him in that place of shame. And it began to transform him. And it began to transform him because Zacchaeus, he began to realize something. He began to realize that after all he'd done, after all that he'd become, after how selfish he'd been, Jesus came. 
just the same. Jesus came to his tree and called him down. He didn't ostracize him. And he came to his house and he accepted him. And he began to transform Zacchaeus. And look at what he said in verse 8. He says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And so Zacchaeus, through this interaction where Jesus came just the same, when he began to realize this, it inspired in him. It inspired in him a generosity. It just bubbled up inside of him. A true and joyful generosity. That's not who Zacchaeus was. This is not the same man that climbed that tree. This man has been transformed. This man is doing something different in his life because something has happened and he realized that Jesus came just the same. So there's this prodigal generosity. And not only is he incredibly generous beyond what the law would ever require of him, he restores his relationships to the max and repays back four times as much. And look at what Jesus said in response. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Which for someone who'd been ostracized from his Jewish family, oh man, a true son of Abraham? No one had called him that a long, long time. Look at verse 10. It says, For the son of man what? Came. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Zacchaeus realized that when he climbed up that tree of shame, when he ran in fear, Jesus came just the same. God's greatest gift to the world came under his tree. And he called him down, and he reinstated who he was, called him back to his true identity. And he came. Just the same. And it begins when you realize this, this. This is the good news. Is that when we climb up our trees of shame and fear. And it steals the joy from our generosity in all areas of life. Jesus comes to our tree. And he calls us down. And he reinstates who we are. He comes to the tree of thugs. He comes to the tree of thieves. He comes to the tree of liars. He comes to the tree of sinners and tax collectors and grinches. And he calls them down from their tree so he can climb on a tree at Calvary. Take on the sin of the world. And Jesus came just the same. And when we realize this, that even though we were a grinch, he came just the same. It begins to transform us. Take a look. This sound wasn't sad. Why? This sound sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, 
was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. God's gift to the world came under our trees. Our trees of shame and fear. And the good news is that Jesus came just the same. And that can transform you. What kind of transformation do you need today? Where do you need to be transformed? What are you afraid of? What is it that, that has you ashamed? What is it that's robbing the joy from Christmas for you? See, some of you, some of you you're in debt up to your eyeballs. And, and you know that something needs to change. But you're afraid of what it might take to, to, to do good habits. And you're ashamed of your bad habits. And you're, and you're so ashamed that if you were going to change something, you would, it's like you'd have to go public with it. People would know that things weren't, weren't in control financially right now. And you'd have to, like, climb a tree. The good news is that Jesus comes under our trees and calls us down. And Jesus came just the same. And, and some of you, you're kind of stingy. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's really because you're afraid. You're afraid that no one's looking out for me but me. And if I do that, what's going to happen to me down the road? And you need to know that Jesus came just the same. No matter what you decide to do, Jesus came just the same. Some of you feel like a failure because of, of your lack of results because of what you haven't been able to bring to the table, you need to know that Jesus came just the same. Came just the same. Some of you carry secrets, and you you are ashamed of what you've done. And it's hard to carry anymore. And you're afraid to come clean. Jesus came to our trees, and he called us down to reinstate who we truly are. Jesus came just the same. Some of you, you struggle with generosity. And the reason that you struggle with generosity is actually because you struggle with receiving. You, you actually struggle with generosity because you think that generosity is tied to deserving or earning. That getting something good is tied to deserving or earning. And so when you think about God, you don't really think that God ought to be generous to you. You don't really think that God should be generous to you because so you're, you're working and you're trying to be good you're trying to be a good Christian, and it's almost like you're just white-knuckling your faith. And the truth is, there hasn't been a lot of joy in your faith recently. And you haven't really been contributing to the kingdom of God recently, and I'm not talking about financially even. The good news is that Jesus came 
just the same. For God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only begotten son. So that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. He did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came just the same. Can you imagine a community that, that lives in this reality and received that gift? Can you imagine what would happen to the generosity of this community? We are a generous community, but can you imagine how much joy would bubble up? Our generosity would never be guided by should and ought and shame and fear. It would be guided by joy. And that joy would be a light to this world that needs a lot of light and needs a lot of joy. It wouldn't just change how we do Christmas. It would change the people around us. It would change their life. It would change this whole community to be a community of generous, joyful givers living in the reality that Jesus came just the same we would be able to show the world that Jesus did not leave crumbs for us. Jesus did not leave crumbs for us, but he prepared a place for us at the feast of the kingdom of God. A feast that we're all invited to, whether we've been a Grinch or not. Jesus came just the same. And that is the true meaning of Christmas. Will you stand with me and receive this blessing? Holy God, we declare the joy of your coming. Holy God, we declare uh, thanksgiving because of your coming. And we thank you that you are transforming us into generous people to joyfully generous people because of your great generosity and what that's done in our hearts. And so I pray over all of us now that our hearts would be open to receive you, that they would prepare you room because you came just the same. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I want to let you know that we do have prayer available over on the side here. And thank you for being here. Have a great day.